For those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, and head on over to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah and chapter 9, Isaiah and chapter 9. There are numerous prophecies in God's Word regarding the Messiah, and this is one of them, and I think very appropriate and applicable uh, to our time this morning, Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 together this morning. Not sure how you're feeling this morning, but uh, perhaps a little bit uh, cautious, uh, frustrated, um, any number of things. Had our regular press conference on Tuesday and then a special press conference on Friday. And certainly things are happening and changing and uh as we gather even here this morning, we gather in light of all of that. It feels almost like Christmas last year in a way. Had a circuit breaker for a couple of weeks and hoping that this Christmas would be different. Anticipating gathering with family and perhaps in large groups and uh, to get the news and these things. So Christmas this year again does not seem to be what we want it uh, to be. I also don't know how you are about Christmas, maybe in general, or perhaps this Christmas in particular. For some of you here this morning and watching online, perhaps this Christmas will be the first Christmas that someone that you have enjoyed Christmas together with in the past will no longer be gathering with you. For some, this is the first Christmas after a loss in 2021, and it makes all of the revelry and partying and fanfare have a bittersweet edge to it, and all the memories come flooding back, memories that will no longer be made, and so that could be hard. And perhaps Christmas in general is difficult because you are struggling as you sit here this morning and are watching online with things that are either public or private, and it makes Christmas feel even worse because it appears that everyone else is having a holly jolly time and you are not. And Christmas, rather than being a time of cheer and joy and celebration and happiness, seems to be personally mocking you because you're not participating in that. Christmas in that sense then can almost feel like a denial of reality. But I hope that we can see this morning that Christmas is not a denial of reality. Christmas is a celebration of reality. Christians are not individuals who only see life through rose-colored glasses, deny the obvious, deny sinfulness, deny the evil and malevolence in the world, and just go through whistling a happy tune. Christians are those who have seen and personally experienced the darkest realities of the human soul and have turned to the only hope that we have, the only light that we have, the only Savior that we have, Jesus Christ the righteous. It is not a denial of reality. It is not just cheerful, annoying optimism. It's not a stiff upper lip. Christianity is a recognition of reality. 
We are sinful. We are evil. We have turned away from God, and yet he has come to us. Every other belief system on the planet says we ascend. Only Christianity teaches that God descends. God comes down to us, and that's what we celebrate at this time of year. Which leads then to even the Christmas story itself. Far too often we sanitize the nativity, we sanitize the story of Christmas. There's a glow around Mary and Joseph and the Christ child. And even one of the more popular Christmas songs for children, the line is, and the little Lord Jesus no crying he makes, which is not true. It's, it's a sentimental view of things, but Jesus was a human baby. He cried. The scene is not as sort of sterile as we make it to be. Joseph and Mary are living under Roman oppression. They are not free. And for as much as we may disagree with our government, our government pales in comparison to the Roman overlords of Joseph and Mary's day. They are not free as Jews. In fact, they are so not free that when a call for a census goes out, they must leave their hometown of Nazareth and go down to Joseph's lineage ancestral home of Bethlehem in order to be registered. And the question will be asked, why would a tyrannical government desire to count heads, taxes? And we know that the tax system in Israel is oppressive and corrupt. Some of their fellow Jews became tax collectors, one of whom became a disciple of Jesus, another of whom Jesus visits. And we know that Zacchaeus is not only taking the taxes for Rome because of Roman authority, he's taking more than he needs and pocketing it for himself. These are dark days indeed. This is not lightly falling snow and the serene sort of scene that we have in our minds. This is not a good time to be a Jew and to be in this part of the world. And add to that, Mary is pregnant out of wedlock, claiming that this is of God, which is something that has only ever happened in human history once. Mary's actually correct despite other immaculate conceptions that have been claimed. But the reality is that in her hometown and around and even her own family, no doubt would not have accepted the fact that she had not been unfaithful to her fiancé, Joseph. Joseph himself desires to divorce her, and yet God tells him not to do that. Now he's participating in her believed and perceived fornication. This couple is not only under pressure from the forces of the government politics they're under pressure of the morality of their day when an unwed mother would have been looked down upon and shunned and perhaps there's more than one reason why Mary went to visit Elizabeth for an extended period of time to get out of her hometown the pressure that she must have felt as a young woman pregnant and more obviously so as the months goes on and not married to her husband her husband or her fiance sticks behind her sticks up for her and marries her, which would also have been scandalous. On top of that, we believe from the text they are poor. One indication we have is that they go up to the temple to offer sacrifice when Jesus is eight days old. 
to dedicate him at the temple, they offer to turtle loves instead of the requisite lamb. And that is a provision in the Old Testament law for individuals that did not have enough money to do so. Implied, again, we're not told directly that Mary and Joseph are poor, but it would seem that poverty is also a part of their experience. And can you imagine giving birth to your first child away from family, the only one there, your husband, and in the scene that we have in Scripture? This is not the nativity that we typically put out on our mantelpiece. And I love the nativity. We have two in our living room currently. But we sometimes dress the scene up as if it is more sterile and serene than it actually was. This is full of all of the stuff of regular human life. And into this comes light. Jesus, born as one of us to represent us, to live a perfect life that we can't and don't want to live, to die a sacrificial death, taking our penalty of sin on himself, raising to life victoriously from the dead on the third day on that Sunday so long ago, and now seated at the right hand of his Father, ever making intercession for us. And it begins, and it begins before time, but in time it begins here with his birth. So in all of this, then, let us go to our passage before us this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In the first place then, we need to see the darkness. And contrary to what some would believe that Christians only want to talk about the happy stuff in denial of the hard truths of life. It is only Christianity that takes seriously the hard truths of life. Notice the state of the nation. As Isaiah opens up his prophecy, he mentions that Naphtali and Zebulun have been brought into contempt. And interestingly enough, on Tuesday in our Bible reading plan, we read from 2 Chronicles chapter 16, and it recounts for us this story, or a story um, that directly relates to this, because Isaiah is prophesying during this time in the nation of Judah. Israel has come against Judah, Jews fighting their fellow Jews, as has been happening since the divided kingdom under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And as the king of Israel comes against Asa, or Ahaz, the king of Judah at the time, In order to take the heat off, he contacts Syria, Assyria to the north, gives them money and asks them as mercenaries to attack Israel in the north so that Israel will stop attacking him in Israel's south, his north. Jews fighting against Jews, Jews being traitors to fellow Jews, Jews backstabbing their own brothers and sisters, and appealing to and paying off Gentiles in order to do it. And who bears the brunt of that? Read Second Chronicles chapter 16, what land is taken? The land of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
They're at the northern edge of the land of Israel. And as any border cities, any border towns, any border states, they are the ones that bear the brunt of war, bear the brunt of cross-border skirmishes. It's all well and good to talk about these battles. This is happening on their land, their homes, their turf. And so before Assyria takes the nation of Israel fully captive, Zebulun and Naphtali feel the weight of Gentile invasion. This is a dark time indeed and a dark place indeed. To them, Isaiah brings this prophecy. And notice the spiritual context as well, not just the historical. He gives us two couplets in verse 2. And the first phrase from each couplet talks about the reality that they are facing. And so in the second place, they are walking in darkness. The people who walked in darkness. Times are dark because there is a battle on. The Assyrians have come and invaded their territory and taken their towns. But they themselves are walking in darkness. They are living in darkness, participating in darkness. What does that mean? It means that individuals in the northern part of Israel and the nation of Israel as a whole is living as if God does not exist. They are living their lives as if God and his word and his truth do not exist. They are pretending that God is not on his throne They are feigning ignorance of his commands. They're walking in a way that is wholly given over to self. They're participating in the darkness. Again, this is not a matter of them not having the truth. They know the truth. But they willingly and willfully reject the truth in favor of lies, in favor of themselves, in favor of their own desires, their own thoughts and reasonings. Going back to January of this year, we started in the book of Romans. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. Their vain hearts became darkened. Their, Their minds became twisted. They know the truth, but they reject the truth. Does that sound like anything that we know? It is not just that the environment is dark in a sense of oppressive and difficult, it's that these individuals, rather than running to their hope, are running away from their hope. Rather than following truth, they are believing and participating in lies. Notice in the third place, they're also surrounded by darkness. Those who dwelt in a land of deep Darkness, not just the darkness of Assyrian oppression, but the darkness of morality, the darkness of immorality, I should say, the darkness of sin expressed. Their culture is given over to darkness, lies. When Jeroboam takes the northern ten tribes away from the United Kingdom following the death of Solomon, he sets up Uh, 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 altars and idols in Dan and Bethel. Calves. Sound familiar? 
Moses goes up on the mountain. When the Israelis are on their way to the promised land, he's up there longer than they are comfortable with, and they go to Aaron and they say, make us a representation of God. And Aaron makes from the gold that they submit and donate a golden calf. Of course, Aaron's story was that it jumped out of the fire that way, but idolatry, worshiping false gods, this has pervaded the whole nation. It's stifling. It's a deep darkness. Does it ever feel like you're the only one in your friend circle or in your family that believes truth? Does it feel like at your workplace you're the only one who believes and stands for truth? Does it feel by times that our world and our society has gone sprinting away from God and his word and his truth? And if we say anything, we are shamed and shunned and canceled. This is not new in human history. This is what's happening in the nation of Israel at this period of time. And so Christianity is not a denial of the evil of of the human uh, condition. And Christmas is not turning a blind eye to the reality as we sort of hum our Christmas tune on the way to our tree and our lights and all the festivities. No, 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 no. Christmas is a deep, or ought to be a deep understanding of the actual reality as Christians also understand the deep reality because we understand better than anyone the condition of our own hearts. We know that the darkness resides in us. It is a recognition of the truth and of reality. And things are dark. Dark politically, dark individually, and dark morally. And into this darkness, the light comes. Notice the second part of each of the two couplets. In 2A, the people have seen a great light. Three things here for our consideration this morning. If they have seen a great light, that means the light is visible. It can be seen. I think there are times when we feel that what we're doing here this morning, even right now, doesn't really matter much. I think there's times when we feel like the regular things that we do because of Christ in us, because of our love for and appreciation to our Father by the Holy Spirit, that it it doesn't really amount to much. That we read our Bibles, but nobody knows but us. We pray, whether by ourselves or in smaller groups. It may be encouraging to a few, but it really it's not pushing back on the darkness that we find in the time and place in which we live. We feel that gathering may help us, and it's beneficial to us, but really in the grand scheme of things, what is it doing? And I'm here to remind us this morning that the light shines brightest when it is the darkest. The light is visible. We are not alone. We are not alone this morning. We look around, we realize we are not alone. There are others that are being transformed by the gospel. There are others that have the light of God in them because of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples that a city that is set on a hill, 
A light that is on a hill cannot be hidden. It is visible. We are to be the light of the world, to be seen. It matters that we believe the truth. It matters that we proclaim the truth. It matters that we live out the truth. People are seeing it. They can deny it. They can hate it, as we read in our time of confession this morning, because their deeds are evil. They can attempt to extinguish it, and attempts are and have been made. But the reality is that despite all of the attempts of the darkness, the light still shines. And in a battle between light and darkness, light will always prevail. Light dispels darkness. Darkness cannot dispel light. And so, the light is visible. What a joy it is, and we've been saying this for a number of years, consistently, I believe, every Sunday, thanking God for the association of churches that we are a part of. What a blessing it is to know that right now, or maybe just wrapping up in Great Village, Nova Scotia, and Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and Oromocto, New Brunswick, and St. John's, Newfoundland, in our region, many others across our nation, across the globe, people that believe the truth, the same truth that we believe, are gathering to sing it, pray it, declare it, hear it, live it, share it. And that's happening around the world. The light is visible. It may appear at times dim. It may appear at times that it's been snuffed out. But Isaiah says, in this time of great darkness, the light has been seen. Number two, it is external. When you see light, it is external to you. And contrary to the popular philosophy of much of Western society, you do not have any light within. We... Do not muster up morality. We do not grit our teeth and try really hard to be better. We can, but we know where that leads. No, no, no. The light is not within. Jeremiah the prophet says that our heart is desperately wicked. No, the light is external to us. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Any light that we have is not our own, but is God's in us. It is God, through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, transforming us, and He, hopefully, is shining through us. It is not us, it is Him. Notice in the third place that the light is magnificent. On them they have seen a great light. Truth is a magnificent thing. It is hard. It is tough. We oftentimes don't want to hear it. We oftentimes shy away from sharing it. But oh, how much better it is to know and live in the truth. The truth is always better than lies. Honesty is always better than manipulation and deception. And the truth is that we are sinners, but there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is the truth. And so rather than finding the light within, which doesn't exist, we find the light without Jesus Christ, that then in the person of the Holy Spirit does come within, out of 
whom then we can live as we ought to in the truth. It is magnificent to hear the truth spoken. It is incredible to see the truth lived out. It is amazing to see former enemies reconciled. It is amazing to see people that shake hands instead of exchange blows. It is amazing to see kindness and gentleness and goodness and patience and compassion and love and truth. And only God is that and only God can create that in us through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. It is magnificent. And then lastly, the light shone on them. On them has light shone. Again, in the mercy and grace of God, he sent his light on us. We don't deserve to have light shone on us. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve Jesus Christ, the righteous. We don't deserve to have our sins forgiven. We don't deserve to have Jesus Christ look at us and say, it is finished. The penalty has been paid and you are my brothers and sisters and for God to call us his sons and daughters. We do not deserve any of this. We reject God. We run from God. We complain. I just finished The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. What a fantastically convicting book. This nation of Israel God takes them out of the land of Egypt with ten plagues and he throws in the parting of the Red Sea on top of it. And they get about two steps into the wilderness and they're already complaining. Moses, what are you doing? Why did you bring us out here? You just brought us out here to kill us. God can't take care of us. We were better off in Egypt. God gives them food, and then that food, oh, I've had that food enough. I don't like the menu. Can you bring me a different menu? I want a different server. This chair is too wobbly. The lights are too bright. Complain, complain, complain. And we chuckle, but that is us. We do not deserve God's light. We are not worthy. But we are loved by him. And if we are in Christ this morning, we are recipients of his light. He has shone his light on us. And then what are the blessings of the light in verse 3? Notice in the first place, an increase in light dwellers. You have multiplied the nation. A nation under attack from the Assyrians, a nation that has no doubt been depleted numerically, a nation that is despairing, a nation that is just barely hanging on, and God says to them, I have multiplied you and will multiply you. What an amazing thing that God is still at work. And in times where it seems to be dark and frustrating and annoying and hard, God is still transforming lives. People are still believing and coming to see and having their eyes opened that they are sinners and that they cannot save themselves. Only God can save and they are repenting and believing in him and him alone for their salvation. And he is bringing life where before there was only deadness. He is bringing light where before there was darkness. God is doing that. He's still doing that in 2021 and will continue to do it in 2022. Notice there is an increase in joy. You have increased its joy. Who can talk about joy at a time like this? Don't think the musicians in Zebulun and Naphtali are writing triumphant anthems. And yet, Isaiah is saying God will, will increase and has increased Israel's joy. 
They turn to Him. They have rest and peace and contentment in Him. Whatever is happening outside, the inside, is in relationship with its Creator. The inside is becoming more like its Creator. The inside has contentment and peace and joy and love and hope and all of the things that we talk about at this time of year. There's an increase in worship and praise. They rejoice before you. This is not a mutual admiration society where they get along and pat each other on the back for military victories or how they have stood up under pressure or how they've been strong under oppressive things. No, they lift their eyes above. God is the one that has done this. God is the one that has brought joy. God is the one that is transforming us, even if our circumstances are not also transformed. They lift their eyes to him and give him praise and worship and honor. And notice there is an increase in triumphant joy. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What joy there is at the harvest. It's a lot of sweat equity that goes into that harvest. A lot of long hours. A lot of looking at the weather. A lot of adjusting things. A lot of equipment failure. There's a lot that goes into the harvest. But what joy there is when all of the food is in. And we know that we have sustenance at least for this year. There is joy there, a special type of joy. And then the joy that comes at the end of a battle when you're dividing the spoil, for two reasons. If you're the one dividing the spoil, you won. If you're not dividing the spoil, you lost. You're either dead or retreating. So to divide the spoil means that you won the battle. But now after winning, there is the benefits of winning. You now have the spoil, the, rem the remnants of battle. And also in our Bible reading plan this week, as Judah receives help from God against their enemies, it takes the nation three days to gather all of the spoil left behind from their enemies. What an amazing joy that comes from having such a great gift given for free, free to you. What great joy there should be at the gift of our salvation, given free to us. All of this joy comes from God. This is not manufactured, this is not hypocritical, this is not in denial of reality. No, 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 no. This is a, a recognition of reality, an acknowledgement of who we are and who we used to be. And praise Unending praise that the God who took us from where we were and brought us into his glorious light, added us to his family, brought us into relationship with him, shone his great light on us, and brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, surrounded us with his love, descended to us when we would not and could not ascend to him who took care of our deepest problem, which is our sinfulness, who nailed it to the cross, to his own son, and who declares us now righteous because of that sacrifice. All of this ought to uh, bring about in us rejoicing and praise and thanksgiving.
And so where do we end? How do we respond? Take your Bibles with me. If you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4. We see Matthew. Matthew the tax collector. Showing us the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Does that sound familiar? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rejoice, Grace Baptist Church, and all those watching online. The light has come. Not just a temporary easing of circumstances, but the one who is one of us, but also God and very God, the one and the only one that can save us from our sins. He has come, and where it has been the darkest, the light shines the brightest. And Jesus, though Jewish, did not come just to be the Messiah of the Jews, but also for all nations, as we have also sung this morning. And so Grace Baptist Church, while the light does not originate in us, is not to be found in us, the light because of Jesus Christ is now in us if we are his, and it is on us to share and spread that light to everyone that we meet this season and always. Have you noticed on the radio songs bemoaning the fact that why can't it be Christmas all year round? Understand this, it can not the lights and not the aura of general goodwill that lasts at least five minutes into the family gathering, but the actual transcendent God of the universe transforming human souls from individuals that used to hold grudges to individuals who now forgive, to individuals that used to be angry that are now peacekeeping. Individuals that used to be filled with greed that now give. Individuals that had a long list of enemies now turned friends. This is what God is doing, and he's doing it in us. We have a message. We have the light. Not ours, his, him. Let us take it to the world that so desperately needs it. Does it matter? It matters more than ever. Let's look them in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for your great love for us in Jesus Christ. There are some that believe at this time of year that we celebrate too much and make too big of a deal of Christmas. But Father, together with Easter, perhaps we are not making a big enough deal about these realities. And this is not a denial of reality. This is not us turning a blind eye to human suffering, to human evil and malevolence. No, this is us rolling up our sleeves and getting in the midst of it as you did for us, bringing light 
to the darkest places. Calling those individuals that are lonely and shut in. Speaking a word of encouragement to those that are cautious and nervous. Giving gifts to those that are most in need. Recognizing individuals that we are not reconciled with and doing our part as much as we can, Romans 12, to live at peace. To live out your character, to be your hands and feet and voice and help and support wherever we can. This is not the light within in the sense of our light, but this is the light within in the sense of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and uh, the, because of Christ, and then the Holy Spirit in us, making us more like you, Father, and sharing that with those around us. Let us do that this season and beyond, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.